Ezekiel chapter 1. The living creatures and the glory of the Lord. In the thirtieth year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kebar River, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, the priest, the son of Buzai, by the Kebar River in the land of the Babylonians. There the, Lord, sorry, there the hand of the Lord was upon him. I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal, and in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was that of a man, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under the wings on their four sides, they had the hands of a man. All four of them had faces and wings and their wings touched one another. Each one went straight ahead. They did not turn as they moved. Their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a man, and on the right side, each had the face of a lion, and on the left, the face of an ox. Each also had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Their wings were spread out upwards. Each had two wings, one touching the wing of another creature on either side and two wings covering its body. Each one went straight ahead. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go without turning as they went. The appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire or like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright, and lightning flashed out of it. The creatures sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. As I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its four faces. This was the appearance and structure of the wheels. They sparkled like chrysolite, and all four looked alike. Each appeared to be made like a wheel intersecting a wheel. As they moved, they would go in any one of the four directions the creatures faced. The wheels did not turn about as the creatures went. Their rims were high and awesome, and all four rims were full of eyes all around. When the living creatures moved, the wheels beside them moved, and when the living creatures rose from the ground, the wheels also rose. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go, and the wheels would rise along with them, because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When the creatures moved, they also moved. When the creatures stood still, they also stood still. And when the creatures rose from the ground, the wheels rose along with them, because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked like an expanse 
sparkling like ice and awesome. Under the expanse, her wings were stretched out one towards the other, and each had two wings covering its body. When the creatures moved, I heard the sounds of their wings, like the roar of rushing waters, like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army. When they stood still, they lowered their wings. Then there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads as they stood with lowered wings. Above the expanse over their heads was what looked like a throne of sapphire, and high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire, and that from there down he looked like fire. The brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds in a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell down on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. Very good morning. How's that? It's a bit better. My name is David. I'm the minister of the church. Welcome. Um, welcome to this new sermon series. Before we do that, why don't we bow or just close our eyes or whatever your posture would be, but let's come before the Lord in prayer. Father, you know what is before us, behind us. Because you are the beginning and the end. I thank you for your son, Jesus, for his sacrifice once and for all, and it is done, it is complete. And I thank you that he is the merciful one also. Who sets many aside to go and pursue those who are lost. And I thank you for your wonderful presence by your spirit. And our prayer, Lord, is that our praise has been acceptable to you. And that as we sit and we listen and we ponder, that there would be something of you that we would take from here, a word, an impression, and it would be life-giving. It would be kingdom-building, your kingdom and not ours. In the name of Christ, may the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you. For you are the Savior of the world. Amen. Amen. So would you keep your Bibles open to Ezekiel 1? Uh, I have named this uh, series Glory Ravaged, Glory Revealed. It, the reason for doing Ezekiel uh, was, I think it was November, I joined, I think, about two dozen uh, ministers in Aviemore. And this was a wonderful retreat. Miranda joined me as well. Uh, we were up at the McDonald's Hotel. It was uh, free, which was nice, and it was uh, luxurious, and there was lectures on Ezekiel. And the person who was leading those lectures on the book of Ezekiel was my principal at Glasgow Bible College. 
uh, Reverend Peter White, who, uh, and so it was an absolute privilege. And he was lecturing on Ezekiel, and the challenge for those who were there was to preach Ezekiel in nine sermons. Now, I couldn't jump into that right away because we were coming into Christmas season, but I felt compelled uh, to respond to that. So we are going to try and go through. We are going to go through, no matter what, unless the Lord returns. We, we are going to go through Ezekiel in nine sermons. I'll take us through that, except for one where Peter White will join us for one week um, when I'm away with my family, and he's going to be preaching Ezekiel 36. So we're going to explore lots of themes, um, lots of themes that you may actually see in today's uh, passage that we don't get to because there's only so much that you can uh, really do in one week. Uh, but we will get through many different uh, themes. For next week in preparation, we will be uh, looking at Ezekiel 2 through to Ezekiel 3.15. So we'll be exploring Ezekiel's call uh, in those passages, give or take a few verses, but um, we'll be exploring Ezekiel's call. Tonight at Alpha, uh, people will come and they will have an idea of what God is like, who God is. Is there a God at all? In fact, that's part of the publicity that we've been plastering Pit Lockery for the last number of weeks. And we'll explore that for seven, eight, whatever as some people will be there tonight. I know of three others who can't make it tonight and are going to join next week. But it'll be this, this just exploration of uh, life, meaning faith. And uh, people will come with their questions on God and to God. After describing his prophetic call in the first couple of verses and setting it in a context and a timeline, Ezekiel describes his first vision to the best of his ability, remember, he is being privy to a visions of heaven and as a mortal, I don't think he's got the vocabulary, can I say that word, but you know what I mean, to really um, picture that. He is having a glimpse of what it is like in the heavenly realms as he sits there by the, the Kebar River and he describes it to the best of his ability. And I'm sure there are words that he cannot find to describe. There he is there. That's a, an artist's impression. That's not a photograph, by the way. It's an artist's impression of the stormy clouds that come from the north, from the route from where he would have came into captivity and in one of Nebuchadnezzar's exiles. So from the place where God's presence is, a vision of the heavens come. Isn't he a generous God? And there's been lots of artist's impressions of what it looks like. Does this get one of those wee things? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there you get wheels, uh, eyes, wings and faces and rainbows and, and thrones and expanse. Obviously, um, I don't know if they, you know, there's no really a figure in there. Um, and here's another artist's impression. That's the best they can do with the, the appearance of the likeness of God in there with a different idea of what the wheels would be like and a different idea about what the, 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 create, the, the creatures with the four faces would have been like. And here's another one, kind of a weird and wonderful, but you see more of the appearance of the likeness of God there. 
and the rave of His mercy and the fire of His consumption and all of the glory. People have come up with the idea that Ezekiel had mental health issues. That's a polite way of putting it, actually. They question his sanity because of the description of the visions that he has because they're out of this world. They're hard to describe. Today, if he was a prophet, they'd probably say he was out his face in drugs. But that's the sort of, that's, you know, um, of, of the sort of things that we're saying about him. Others have actually come up with the idea that he encountered extraterrestrials, that he encountered aliens trying to put into context or into a frame that we can understand that's part of our world, even though aliens and all that isn't a part of our world. But you know what I mean? Um, and here is where he says all of these things. Here's a very quick historical uh, timeline setting. We know that in 922 BC, that Israel, the 12 tribes, Israel, the 10 in the north, and Judah, the two in the south, separated. They became distinct. They became Israel and they became Judah. Judah being in the south where Jerusalem was. And then about 200 years later, the Assyrians conquered the tribes in the north. They were taken into captivity. There was others from the Assyrians. That's what they did. They came and they planted people in your uh, towns, in your cities to break it up, to disrupt it to bring a new flavor, a new culture, a new setting. And the ten tribes are dispersed, are scattered, never again uh, to be seen in the pages of Scripture uh, as a whole. Certainly a lot of them were refugees who went to the two tribes down south, to their cousins, to their family. And the population in Judah and Jerusalem exploded because of what we see today in the world, all that refugee crisis. But then the Babylonians conquered Judah, and they did this over a couple of uh, waves. And then they, they would, what they would do is they would take the leading citizens, the best, the cream of the crop, and they would take them in, into Babylon. And this would have been why we find Ezekiel by the river uh, Kebar, that canal, sitting there, because he was one of the best. He... Um, was middle class, we might want to say, or upper class, whatever, a professional. And then we see only 10 years or so later, give or take a year or a few months or whatever, in 587 BC, Jerusalem is destroyed. The poorest are left there. I mean, the real poorest are left there. And the remnant are taken into exile. Ezekiel lived through this period. The king had been taken in to, uh, taken from Jerusalem into Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. And without a doubt, they must have felt that they were rejected by God. Their whole life had been taken away. Their whole history had been taken away. Yahweh had been, in their eyes, in their senses, in their experience, defeated. So just ponder in his despair before he sees this vision. He was 30, or thereabouts. He was just, before he was led into exile, he was just about to clock in for his first day at work as a priest. So education had been going towards that place 
And he was just about to take up his duties as one of the many priests in the temple sacrificial system. And then Jerusalem was conquered and the, they were taken. And you see Daniel in that group as well, or maybe a group before, taken into Babylon. So his whole life as a priest was taken away from him. His career had come to an end before it even began. So we can imagine Ezekiel asking, is, is God still with me? Can God still use me? And it's a heartache of a question that people ask even today. With all the stuff that's been taken away, what use am I to the Lord? With all the vision they had and the preparation, and then life throws them a curveball. The question gets asked, how can I live? Where am I going to go on from here? So here is Ezekiel, a refugee by the, the river Kebar, trying to remember life in Jerusalem. There he is. Confronted in that foreign nation with foreign gods, having their faces rubbed in it that they were conquered, that Yahweh had been defeated, that his God, supposedly the God of creation, uh, the Alpha, the Omega, had, had seemingly lost. Babylon, one of the, the richest, most developed uh, nations of the earth who like to boast about their military uh, strength, would have been boasting uh, about their, their victory, boasting about their luxury, boasting about their wealth in the street corners. We, we see that in ancient archaeology where scenes of victories would be put in pillars. We see that a lot in, in Egypt and Persia, etc. We would see the, the vanquished being dragged into the cities in these carvings by the victorious nations. And, and these would have been de depicted that Israel was conquered. And we need to remember when it's the, the nation Israel, always that went with that was the God of the Israelites, the God of the Hebrews, the God of Abraham seemingly had been defeated. And this is what Ezekiel lived through. He had lost. His God was silent. Whatever glory he had left was back in Jerusalem. And even now, Jerusalem was under threat. The prophets back there were saying, Jerusalem will never be conquered. Jeremiah, God's prophet, says, yes, it will. God's glory will be removed from Israel will depart from Israel, depart from the temple. And all of this was his experience as he sat there. The heavens were silent. His despair grew as he sat by the rivers of Babylon and remembered Zion. And then, just at that moment, when possibly life couldn't get any more difficult and hopeless, the barriers between heaven and earth were open for him. Just as they were for John in Revelation chapter 4, where he saw the throne room of the, the glory of God with all the elders and the 24 thrones 
in the song, Holy, 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 just as they were for Isaiah in chapter 40, here they were for Ezekiel, and he was given a vision of the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Chapter 1, verse 28. He was given a vision of the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. And visions is, kind, is, is a kind term for what Ezekiel saw. If Jacob saw a vision or a dream seeing angels going up and down to heaven, and if Isaiah had this vision of, of the Lord on his throne, then what Ezekiel was subject to blew his minds. Blew his mind so much that we are left with those artists' impressions, probably poor impressions, trying to depict exactly what had overcame this young man who hadn't even clocked in one day's work as being a priest. As he sat in his despair by the, the canal at, at Kebar, contemplating what next, that he would never, in fact, he never returned, as far as we know anyway, back to the promised land. It says in verse 1 that he saw a vision of God. And yet these visions of God were enough to wake Ezekiel up from his slumber. A slumber, what I mean by that is that he looks at what his, his vision sees and it determined what his hope was going to be. He saw only captivity. He saw only uh, lament of, of Zion, and it was a slumber. It rubbed off on him, I imagine, just as it does for us when we look at situations through our own eyes and not through the eyes of faith. And into that, God woke him up out of his slumber, and he fell before the glory of the Lord. And the storm reveals in verse 5 four living creatures who served as a kind of chariot, a, a driving force of this divine presence where the Spirit uh, of God is moving rapidly about them. And, and it's here that we see the appearance of the likeness of God speaking from this huge chariot in verses 4, verses 26, and right at the end, verses 28. These heavenly creatures, whatever they were, um, were awesome. They, their wings were four. They, had, they were dazzling. Beside each of them were wheels by which they traveled. These wheels were weird, kaleidoscopic. They had eyes all about them, about the rim. Above these wheels, above this platform, was above this sort of wheels and the angels was a, a platform. And from that platform, a voice. And high above in a throne, as it says in verse 26, was a figure like that of a man who from the waist up was glowing splendor, below fire, surrounding him rainbow radiance. And at this vision, as he sat beside the canal at Kebar, Ezekiel falls down, and I would say, in worship. Can you imagine what that would be like, seeing the appearance of the glory of God? We see in the New Testament, whenever an angel shows up, a mere created being, the angel always says, do not fear. Can you just imagine this? And this angel had, f these, not, these creatures 
had four uh, faces we, we see from verse uh, 10. So what was it God was trying to reveal to Ezekiel and to us about himself and his vision with these creatures having four faces? Well, the human face uh, throughout history, uh, it's got symbolism, all of these have got symbolism and the human face is the most exalted in creation. We are very good, made in the image of God. We're supposedly intelligent, full of wisdom and dignity. Therefore, we reflect God's capacity, or it should, that capacity should be reflected in us for wisdom and for dignity. Because in this vision, that's who God is. The one who understands all things. Who is the highest, the most exalted. The ego is the king of the birds. And in that, there's a symbol of power. There's a symbol of, of deity reflecting God's speed and God's steadiness. The lion, the, the king of the wild beasts, uh, the sovereignty, the, the supremacy of the lion reflecting God's strength and God's courage. And the oxen, the most exalted of all the domestic animals, servitude, sacrifice, reflecting the sacrificial system in which God's presence was experienced at the temple. And although uh, archaeologists have found lots of different art pieces of art and lots of different sculptures where uh, you see a, a human body joined with an oxen or a, a lion and various different creations like that. No other nation combines all of these four aforementioned creatures like we see in Ezekiel's vision. They're not found anywhere else. Again, this points to the uniqueness of the God of Israel. This vision was not just a vision that some prophet of Baal would have experienced, uh, you know, or some other demigod would have experienced, because God was revealing himself and there is no one like him. No, not even the words that we have in paper can properly describe what he is like in all of his glory. He is the perfect embodiment of all the attributes of deity lacking nothing in himself. God is the master. He is the Lord of every creation. He's the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the consuming fire. And at the, the same time, we have that rainbow brightness. Even though he is the judge of all, he is also the God of mercy. This is our God. Our testimony in here is a mixture of those things. We know him as the God of mercy who forgives our sins and his, his uh, love is new every morning. We know what it is to bow the knee and ask for forgiveness. We know what it is to be called sons and daughters of the living God because he is gracious and he is good. And we have testimonies that describe that on and on and on. And we also have these eyes all about the place. Obviously, the eyes of the, the four creatures, which amounts to eight. And then all the eyes around the rim, and you can go and calculate them if you want. Because there is nothing that God does not see. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. 
You know when I sit. You know when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. And Jesus affirms this. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And yet not one of them is forgotten by God. A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, writes this. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most pretentious fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deepest heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move towards our mental image of God. Goodness. I could sit for a while and ponder some of those thoughts. And yet we do not live in a bubble and a vacuum. We live in secular Scotland, most of us, my Canadian friend. We live in secular Scotland and that rubs off on us. It rubs off in our children. It rubs off in how we view God. Because our society is a God-denying society on the whole. I was encouraged this week to, to read that this idea that people are turning their back in religion seems to be uh, um, slowing down and that people are asking the questions that we hope they will ask tonight and tomorrow and next week at Alpha. Trends change. Our culture just gets swayed about all over the place by whatever strongest influential wind is blowing. But on the whole, Scotland is a secular society where God and the truth is denied and truth is just played out alongside any other truth that is out there. It permeates our media. It permeates our morality. It permeates our politics, our education system. It permeates the hearts and minds of our nation and if we do not fill our hearts and minds with the Word of God and the power that the Spirit brings through God's spoken Word, then it permeates our hearts and minds and how we view God and how we look at our situation and, uh, and the vision that we have for what God intends to do in bringing His kingdom here. In our nation, I believe, on the whole, God is small, God is insignificant, God is a private matter, if he exists at all. Those strong assumptions rub off on us, these strong statements rub off on us. And this vision of God, the lack of, is a challenge facing us here today in, in the churches in our land. David Wells calls this vision 
the weightlessness of God. Where if you watch um, Brian Cox, God is just intellectually argued out of the equation. Um, Daryl O'Brien, is it, the comedian? God is just humored. You are a joke. You're not rationally intelligent people because you're people of faith. That is the weightlessness of God. God is lightweight. And the question is, as this rubs off on us, as we think about the most important question, um, who God is, who is he to us? I need to ask us, is our God lightweight? Is he a featherweight? And yet, the scriptures continuously ask the question, who is like our God? The exact opposite. All the way through scripture, just who can stand up against him? After he parted the Red Sea, Moses sings, Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? And then after prophesying exile, Isaiah pronounces hope as a comfort to God's people. You're going to get into exile, but there's hope. And he says, this is your hope. God sits above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. Yes, there is judgment coming because of the way in which you have left the God you love. You've forgotten your first love. But he's not abandoned you. He is still in control. He has not been defeated. He is not silent. The Old Testament is bursting full of accounts of God's otherness and God's greatness because there is none like him. And he is the same in the New Testament. There is no difference at all. Someone says to me last week, actually, God seems to be quite angry, uh, judgmental in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, Jesus, all you read the Sermon on the Mount, blessed, blessed, and love, love, love. And I says, yeah, but you need to read Revelation. <laughs> Don't, don't just focus on that, but see the whole of Scripture. You will see that Jesus is coming back to judge. You know? He's come to divide, to ask the question, who is your God? Will you bow the knee as Ezekiel bowed the knee? Even you see a certain thing in your eyes, will you trust that he is who he says he is and called you to be a certain person? Will you follow? Leave the dead to bury the dead. Will you follow? There's hard words in Jesus from his lips. And in Mark 2, when four friends, I think it's four friends, can't get in to see Jesus because the, the house is bursting and they say, stuff this for a game at soldiers. And they go up on the roof and they break open the roof and they lower their paralyzed friend on a bed down to Jesus. We get a glimpse of the world's heart when the leader's question Jesus' authority because Jesus forgave the guy's sins first and foremost. And, and, and this is the religious mindset. This is the, it, when they say, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? alone? Because it baffles the world. It baffles those who are not born again. 
that when they encounter the otherness and the greatness of God manifest in Jesus, that he can do just that because he is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I meant to put that up. Let me just see where I'm going. Ah, yeah, sorry. Give me that last one up here, will you? Thank you. I'll do it. I'll do it. Yeah. So how big is your vision of God is where I'm going to end this. This was Ezekiel's question. Did the God of Babylon conquer Yahweh? How could God's glory be removed from the temple? Surely that would never happen. Where are you in all of this, God? Have you abandoned us and our sin so grievous? Have you been conquered? This vision shows that that thought is actually quite laughable. God has, in fact, brought the exiles to where they are. And he is with them in and through the ministry of Ezekiel to bring about change. God is still reigning in his throne. He's still watching. He's still directing. He is still sovereign. And from now on, the central question for Ezekiel was not whether he lived in Babylon or whether he lived in the Holy Land or whether his vacation as a priest was going to be fulfilled in that strictest sense or not. The central question, the central truth was the existence in heaven of a throne and on the throne the Lord God omnipotent. That is central all the way through Ezekiel from now on and it's something we need to keep in our mind through the judgment, through the devastation of not just Jerusalem, but the mountains and the land and the purge that seems to be happening at God's direction. Central was the truth that God is still God in heaven and he has not changed one iota. Because this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell face down and I heard the voice of one speaking. Looking here at the heart of Ezekiel 1, where Ezekiel is in exile under God's judgment, he saw a vision of God and he fell face down. God wasn't absent, God was present. I love that. God comes from the north in a vision and is present with his people. And we'll see as Ezekiel goes on that God removes his presence from the temple, which couldn't hold him anyway, to be with his people. Are we truly in awe of God? Are we confident of God? Is God weighty in our heart? Or have we made him into something else? Is the challenge before us today and until that day in which we see his full glory and we can only imagine what that would be like? as we stand in awe of him. Can we, can we pause just with some of those thoughts and, and come before, uh, and, and come in a prayerful attitude to the Lord?
there are always areas in our life that we feel <clears throat> um, that we lament over. And it might be stuff that habitually comes up. But we know that we're called to walk in the dust of our rabbi. We know that Jesus says, be yoked with me. So just accept the fact that even through the difficult times um, that we go through, the Lord is always with us. And the, God, the Lord will bring about his will even through those difficult times and probably shape us more into the likeness of his son Jesus through those difficult times, maybe more than the easy times. So I want to just recognize that. But at this point, I do want to give us the opportunity, any of us who wants to stand at this moment, stand in awe of God. Now, it may be one person for one reason. This might be just a word for one person. I do not know. So do not follow the crowd. If your spouse stands up, don't stand up because your spouse is standing unless there's something compelling you to do that. And if it's just me standing, then it's just me standing. But if you feel you need to stand in awe of the Lord, our Father, then I invite you in this moment between you and Him as we close our eyes and we do not make any judgment in anyone. We just stand, we just wait here before the Lord. If you feel compelled to stand, do so now. Dear Lord, you know the secret thoughts of our hearts and we commit all of them to you. And my prayer is that you would expand our vision, you would correct our vision, that we would follow you in spirit and in truth, and that your will would be done on earth as in heaven. In the name of your Son, Jesus, and by your spirit we pray. Amen.